That old truck I bought with three months of summer. I was king of the world. Welcome back to another new episode of Now Hear This Entertainment, featuring like interviews with guests who are having success in entertainment, primarily music. I am Bruce Wozniak, talking to guests who are singers, songwriters, musicians, recording artists, and more from the worldwide music community. Do please stay connected. You can write to podcast at nhte.net, or instead of email, you are welcome to DM me through the at Now Hear This Entertainment Instagram account. Anything and everything to do with this podcast or the entertainment industry itself, I look forward to hearing from you. Joining me today on the Now Hear This Entertainment guest line from Nashville, my guest is a singer, songwriter, guitar player who released a new single last month. He was one of the writers on the 2018 Jason Aldean song featuring Miranda Lambert called Drowns the Whiskey, which spent multiple weeks at number one on country radio, was nominated for CMA Song of the Year, and sales-wise was certified multi-platinum. He is a regular at the Bluebird Cafe and the Listening Room in Nashville, and even toured as a guitarist for Josh Thompson. He also had his own band, which was signed to Warner Music Nashville and toured for over five years. You've been hearing a song of his called Ain't Mine Anymore. Welcome to Now Hear This Entertainment, Jeff Middleton. Hi, Bruce. How are you? Hi, everyone. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, you bet. It's great to have you here. Let's get things started by having you first share with the audience all about the track of yours that was just playing called Ain't Mine Anymore. So Ain't Mine Anymore, I wrote that with uh, two of my buddies here in town, a guy named Brandon Kinney and a guy named Cameron Bedell. Uh, We've written bunches of songs together. And um, we took an idea that I had um, about a house that I used to live in. And uh, I looked around and it was sort of, I had this idea that none of this is mine anymore. And so it turned into just a song title on a hook book called Ain't Mine Anymore. And I brought it in one day to those guys. And instead of making it about the actual scenario, we kind of took it and uh, made it about kind of the things that shape your lives that uh, aren't in them anymore, but they definitely have a place uh, in your heart and in your soul and in your life story. So uh, we turned it into a song that's one of my favorite that I've actually ever been a part of. There's a couple of follow-ups that are popping into my head that I'm hoping I'm not going to forget. One of them is you said in there an idea that I brought So is it easier when it's your own idea because you already kind of have probably some thoughts around what you're bringing to a write, or does it not really matter when you've written hundreds and hundreds of songs, who brings it in? Uh, It doesn't really matter in the sense that uh, when I'm in a room anyway, I want to get the best song. And if the ideas that I have aren't clicking with the people I'm in a room with, then you know, we go on to the next one. And if there's an idea that someone, you know, puts out there that I connect with, uh, we might chase that down. Um, sometimes it depends on the state of the idea. Like sometimes I'll bring in just a title. Like that was just a title with a little bit of backstory for where it was coming from. And then other times someone will bring in, or I will bring in, you know, a fully formed chorus or a verse, and then you'll go from that. Uh, so you can go from the simplest form of just a title all the way up to, hey, I have this chorus that I love. Let's chase that. Okay, but I'm going to put you on the spot here, although it's really more designed as a teaching moment. When you are the one 
who brings in the idea and it starts getting worked by you and the others and somebody feels really strongly about this idea and where they're starting to take it and you just really don't like it. Is it tough in those situations? Is it, well, it depends on who those writers are, Bruce. If we have a nice rapport, I can speak up. How does that go when there's that little bit of tension that you're kind of firm and like, I just I just don't like it. This is my idea and I just don't see the song going there. That's the tricky the trickiest part of songwriting that you kind of have to learn with experience. I know when I first moved to Nashville, I did not co-write. I didn't even know that this was a thing. Ah. So over the last, you know, however many decades I've been songwriting, I've gotten pretty good at kind of managing the expectations for what an idea is kind of up front. Like so, saying things like, hey, this idea is pretty wide open. We can go wherever we want all the way to, hey, this is really where I want to go with this idea. Mm. And then being willing to say if we're not going there. But like anything in life, the, the better the expectations are set, <laughs> the easier it is to avoid <laughs> conflict later on down the road. So it happens. But, you know, and sometimes ideas will go places you don't want them to go. And then you just have to decide whether you want to walk out of the room with a song that you may not love or to trust the muse and go along with it. And what was the story with Ain't Mine Anymore? Were you intending to record that yourself or was it just, it was fair game for all of us? That one was fair game. That was, it was literally just a title and kind of an emotional feeling that I brought and um, to be honest, it was about kind of the, the house that I was divorced out of mm. um, and did not want to write that story. Mm. Uh, and that was kind of where Brandon and Cameron were able to take an idea and a feeling of these things that are in our lives for a period of time and shape you and form you and then disappear or go away or leave somehow. And you said, okay, good. We're not going that way. <laughs> exactly. And to be honest, that was one of those where it was a little bit liberating that two songwriters were in there to save me from myself <laughs> writing, you know, some morose, sad song that no one would ever really want to listen to or record anyway. So I like it. I like it. Well, as the audience heard, clearly you've built up quite a resume, but I would love to have you describe the foundation, which all of this has been built upon because like so many others, you aren't actually from Nashville originally. So share with us about New Jersey, New York City, Philadelphia, just in terms of why each of those is part of your story, but then also what all you were doing musically before you ever moved to Nashville. Okay, so I was, uh, I grew up in New Jersey uh, in a town called South Orange, which is in North Jersey. It's about 25 miles from New York City. Um, so I grew up, it's a suburb, you know, little suburban town. Um, and then I went to high school. I actually was a full-fledged member of the rat race at age 14, taking trains and subways and all that sort of stuff mm. uh, to a high school in Manhattan, wow. which definitely is a different experience from probably 99.99% of the people <laughs> who I work with on a daily basis. <laughs> um, and so I, I was from a musical perspective, I grew up actually listening to heavy metal and Iron Maiden and rock and all that kind of um, stuff, which I still enjoy, but I, I just don't write that kind. I started writing when I was in high school and was clearly not going to write loud, bombastic heavy metal songs. Mm. Um, but I went to college uh, just outside of Philadelphia 
and got into a number of bands and music groups and was exposed to a lot of different styles of music that I had kind of heard and kind of knew, um, but never had really um, taken a deep dive in. So things like Tom Petty, uh, Bruce Springsteen, more in the songwriter realm mm. of uh, the creative world. Okay. Um, and actually, funny side note, this past weekend, speaking of Springsteen, I actually was uh, playing in Annapolis, Maryland with a guy named Tommy Sims. He and I were in a round at the music at the songwriter festival. And I saw him when I was in college. Wow. Uh, playing for Springsteen at the spectrum in Philadelphia. Wow. So it was really kind of cool. We had, I told him, I was like, I saw you when I was in college <laughs> playing. So anyway, sidebar, but, um, that kind of shaped where I was going musically and how I was writing. So, you know, in Philadelphia and outside Philadelphia, I started playing, more singer songwriter type rounds i had a buddy we were in a duo he was a guitar player songwriter as well so we did those sorts of things hmm. um and then all of that evolved into you know in college was when i discovered country songwriting uh, uh somewhat inadvertently i was watching uh the, the tonight show with jay leno and I was in, you know, I was a senior in college and I remember seeing this guy in a guitar and he had the cowboy hat and the microphone on his, you know, head and, but he was sitting in the, in the aisle in the audience, basically hmm. just him and the guitar. He didn't play with anybody else. It just was him. Mm -hmm. And he played a song called learning to live again, um, by, uh, Don Schlitz, who's a fantastic, you know, very famous Hall of Fame songwriter. Yeah. I didn't know this at the time, but the guy's name was Garth Brooks. Yeah. And that was the moment where I was like, okay, where do they write songs uh, like that? Okay. Because okay. I need to know where that wow. happens. Wow. That's cool. And so, that's cool. Yeah. The next day, I went to the, I'm going to date myself, but I went to the uh, used CD store, Plastic Fantastic <laughs> in Ardmore, Pennsylvania. <laughs> And I literally went to the country section and, and bought probably 20 CDs Whoa. by any artist because, you know, they were probably two bucks a pop being country CDs, you know, that were used. Um, but any name that I had even remotely heard of, I was like George Strait, Alan Jackson, Garth Brooks, anything. And then just kind of dove in and, and became a fan of songwriting and kind of decided at that moment that I was like, okay, that's where I need to be to write songs. Yeah. And I want to jump in here because I'm saying, whoa, because it was all just because of seeing Garth on Jay Leno. And so uh, Jay Leno would have never known Garth Brooks would have never known, but these are how influential certain performances can be. I mean, you can talk to people who are in the music business or people who are just music fans and they can point to just like you did one significant moment and what it meant to them in terms of their music life and so, lo and behold, there you are the next day in the record store. And by the way, folks, this is a wee bit of a special episode, not only being number 450, which is somewhat of a milestone, so to speak. Congrats. But it's also being released on my birthday, on September 28th. And as much as I'd like to say it's as a belated celebration, one week from tonight, on October 5th, I will be heading up to the Florida Panhandle for the Pensacola Beach Songwriters Festival. I will, of course, be recording podcast interviews there, and that is possible thanks to the new Vocaster 
That was released in June by Focusrite, who I'm thrilled to have as a sponsor of this show. The Vocaster is an audio interface for podcasting, spoken word, voiceovers, etc. And the model I have is the Vocaster 2, which simply means that two mics and two sets of headphones can be plugged into it. And that's how I will get to have it at the Songwriters Festival, sitting opposite songwriters and doing interviews for the show. It's a USB connection to my laptop, and it's even how some people are live streaming. If you're doing a podcast and your audio quality is just okay, or if it's bad, (laughs) you owe it to your audience and yourself to give your show a better chance of succeeding by delivering great audio. And if you've been thinking about starting a podcast, let the release of Focusrite's new Vocaster be what gets you to finally launch. On my show website, nhte.net, there is an ad for the Vocaster. It says, Tell the World. You will see it in the right-hand column on desktop or scroll way down to just below the social media logos if you're on mobile and then tap or click on that to go to their website and learn more about the Vocaster and you'll be on your way to using what I use and am so satisfied with. So, Jeff, then do I have this right? I think you moved to Nashville and were getting yourself immersed into the songwriting community, yet you went back to school to get an MBA. Is is that correct? And if so, talk about the timing of that, meaning right as you're getting settled into Music City. Well, so I moved I moved down, and at the time, uh, I didn't really have a lot of connections. I had one connection who, was, who had signed me to a couple of single song deals, and that was about it. Those are the, you know, them and uh, my wife at the time, she had a cousin here in Nashville and I was able to get a job at a telecom company. Mm. It was a startup company, which was kind of cool. It was entrepreneurial. Um, it was right before, you know, the internet bubble and all that data stuff was happening. So what kind of happened was I would work there a day and then I would go, um, play writers rounds uh there was a place called the broken spoke which was a great little writers round um club here in town and you know it's where songwriters would hang out and you'd get to meet people who were kind of in the same boat as you or maybe a little bit further ahead and then just try to write up and make writing appointments and make connections um but as it turned out for the first few years i was here i I didn't get a lot going like i was writing a lot of songs meeting people here and there, but I couldn't find kind of what was my goal, which was to get a staff songwriter position. Mm -hmm. Um, And at the same time, this job that I had taken um, was actually going very well. So I was being promoted. I had started out, I was pretty good at computers. I had done some computer software stuff before I moved to town. And uh, so I was pretty good at messing around in Excel and and doing those kinds of things. And so I came into the billing group and then went from billing group. I became a business manager uh, in charge of the markets in Memphis and Nashville. Ah. And then from there, I got promoted to be a director of finance where I had Nashville, Memphis, Atlanta, and St. Louis under my purview. And so at the same time, my songwriting career had seemed to stall out my business career as it were was was doing very well so my my degree was in history and pre-med so i did not have any business classes or business background so Uh. i i kind of was looking at it going you know i think at some point someone's going to look at me and go this guy has no experience how did he become (laughs) how did he become this we need to put somebody else in there so i ended up going back to 
I went to the executive program here in Nashville at Vanderbilt, um, got my MBA. And ironically, during my during my tenure at Vanderbilt, the company ended up going through a bankruptcy. The job became not fun anymore. Oh, no. And in my you know third semester of four, I realized that I was doing the wrong thing with my life and I wanted to be a songwriter and a mm, musician. So interesting. Yeah, I finished, you know, I finished out and as it turned out, within the same month period, I was offered a job in Virginia or a severance package, which I took the severance package and I graduated. So I got my degree. And also got liberated and sent back into unemployment <laughs> slash the music business. Okay, but I know you signed a publishing deal with Liz Rose Music. How soon after you moved to Nashville was that? And and for that matter, how did that, that come to be? That was a long be? time. How did that come to be since you said you went down there and you didn't really know anybody there? And how long did it go for also? So here's here's the irony of the whole thing. Me coming to Nashville to get a staff songwriter position in terms of the order in which I got contracts, the staff songwriter position was literally the last one I ever signed. I had a record deal at a major record label before I ever had a publishing deal. Mm. So, yeah. So basically I was I was an unsigned songwriter um, kicking around Nashville, going doing the same thing that I was doing. Um, but what happened was I ended up making more connections because of my guitar playing. Mm. So I had some people who, a buddy of mine who I wrote with, he asked me, he didn't play guitar and he asked me to come play with, uh, with him, play for him because he was playing for a producer. He was a great singer, uh, a guy named Matt Caldwell, who's from Texas. And he, he was a great, he is a great singer. And, um, he wasn't playing guitar at the time. So he was like, Hey, can you play? Can you come play for me? I'll pay you 50 bucks. And I was like, heck yeah, I, I'm going to get paid in the music industry. So we went, I played, uh, you know, a few songs for him. He had his meeting with his producer and the producer actually asked me afterwards and was like, Hey, do you, uh, do you play guitar for people? And I was mm. like, well, as of today, as of today I do. <laughs> And he, I do know. So he connected me. Yeah, exactly. It was like, as a matter of fact, I do. Um, My business so cards actually, are at the printer. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I'm going to go make them. Um, but he connected me with an artist who was uh, had a record deal at the time. Uh, never had anything come out, but I played for her for a bunch. That gig actually led to two different gigs. Mm-hmm. One was with an artist uh, named Shelly Wright who uh, had some hits back in the 90s, a fantastic country artist and songwriter. But I was able to do some really cool things with her. I went to Kuwait and played mm. uh, in Kuwait and Iraq and did a military tour you wow. know, during that period of time. The first time I ever played at the Grand Ole Opry, she was the one who brought me up there into mm. the circle. And so that was a really cool piece of my career. And at the same time I was playing for her, I met with I met as writing partners two brothers from Oklahoma who were doing a duo the Fleener brothers Matt and Ryan Fleener so that turned into the band uh, that I imagine we'll get to um, but the Liz Rose deal actually came after the band oh fell apart oh so yeah gosh. wow I had a publishing deal during the band but it was not with Liz. Uh, and how long did the Liz Rose publishing deal last? 
I actually was there for – I was actually there twice. Uh, I was there from 2012 to 2016, and then I was back there, I guess, the two years during COVID. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that was a little less – little less exciting of a publishing deal but yeah uh, yeah liz and i she's great and she's taking good care of me she's a fantastic writer and one of my favorite people in the business well yeah let's get into you started to mention this the, the band that i mentioned in the intro that you performed with that was signed to warner music nashville and toured for over five years yes the dirt drifters so we were a um, we started out, I was just writing with Matt and Ryan Fleener, who were their brothers from Oklahoma, and they were pursuing a record deal on their own as a duo. Um, I met them, you know, out in Nashville playing shows. I dug what they did, and I asked them, hey, you all want to write? You all want to write sometime? And they said, sure. So we wrote and built a really kind of solid writing relationship which was great um and as it turned out they lost they, they had publishing deals but then they lost them mm. and so we were all unsigned they were working construction i was taking care of babies and um my own babies uh, <laughs> and so they would come out to my house every tuesday night i had a little studio um and matt and ryan and another friend of ours named blue foley uh, would come out every Tuesday night after work and we would just write songs that we loved and were kind of all a little bit jaded and checked out on the Nashville <laughs> music scene as it was and how we were fitting into it or not fitting into it. But we were loving the music that we made and it evolved into uh, from the duo into an actual band. Um, and we ended up you know, we were like, well, we just want to get out of town and we're going to go play music for people that just want to hear music that aren't kind of in the game of I've seen this before or what are you going to do and how do I market it and all that kind of stuff. But just people who love music. So we were lucky enough to have a friend who worked at a booking agency and was willing to help us. He liked what we did. We had a friend at BMI who um, was helpful in setting up a showcase for us because we were looking for a publishing deal still because we figured we needed some money to put gas in the van. <laughs> and as it turned out at this publisher showcase, a number of labels came out and Warner asked, Warner offered us a deal. Mm. So within six months of the band becoming a band, we actually <laughs> had become part of the Nashville music scene uh, as a major label artist. Amazing. Um, and so we were at Warner for five years. We did a lot of touring. Um, we did release a record uh, in 2011. Uh, our singles didn't do so well, but I'm super proud of the record. Uh, it's out there in the world called This Is My Blood. Uh, we wrote it and played on it, which was at the time pretty unusual uh, here in Nashville. And it was it was a good time. I mean, we had a, we had a lot of fun. We played a lot of shows. We got to go all over the country and play in little dive bars and big theaters and open for some fun people. And, uh, Willie Nelson is on our record. He made a guest appearance on our record, which is also kind of a neat kind of Nashville box check, if you will. <laughs> um, so, so from there is where I met Liz. Oh, uh, okay. we okay. shared a business manager with Liz. Uh. 
And so when I started looking for a publishing deal again, Liz was starting her company, and I was one of the first two writers that she signed. This is where I'm supposed to say that if this was a video podcast, at the bottom of the screen, it would have been flashing results not typical when Jeff was talking about the six-month story of the band and everything that happened as fast as it did. Definitely not typical. Very, very (laughs) atypical. And we were surprised. You know, and here's the great part about the music industry is the day we got offered our record deal, we were driving to Texas that afternoon uh, and we were going to go halfway or maybe not halfway, but close enough. We had a show in Fayetteville, Arkansas at George's Majestic Lounge where we opened for a cover band named Fat Dixie. <laughs> so that was the music industry. We were a major label <laughs> artist at that point, and here we are. But it was the best gig we ever played. And the other cool thing about the music industry is how small it is, which is how I'm able to tell you that Back on episode 434 of this show, a little over three months ago, the guest was none other than Blue Foley, who Jeff No kidding, really. That's awesome. And on that episode, if you want to go back and listen to it, folks, I'll put a link on the show page for Jeff's episode at nhte.net. He did talk about the Dirt Drifters on that conversation. And since I'm mentioning a past episode, one much more recently, in fact, just three weeks ago, episode 447 with guitarist Nick DiPiro, I mentioned on there about Obscure Ball, which is a podcast I had talked about in the past as well. Anyhow, earlier this month when I brought it up, I had made mention of host Stuart Barefoot launching a three-episode look at the worst marathon of all time, a boxing match marred by scandal, and a World Series that never happened. 1904 was a bad year for sports. I hope you listened to the first installment in that series. I did, and it was quite, quite fascinating so much so that I emailed Stuart to compliment him. But anyhow, now the second part of that, Chapter 2 of Circa 1904, is about to come out this Friday, September 30th, and you'll be able to find it at obscureballpod.com or just search for Obscureball almost anywhere you listen to podcasts. Uh, Speaking of bands, I had also said back at the start of this episode that you toured as a guitarist for Josh Thompson, So for the benefit of anyone in the audience who is an aspiring performer, how did that come to be and how did you benefit from those experiences being out on tour with him? So I played for Josh after the band uh, disbanded. Ah. Uh, Josh and I had actually developed a writing relationship. We had Ah. been kind of kicking around the same circles. We had done some shows opening for Josh um, the guys in our band and Josh and his kind of circle of people, uh, were all friendly. Um, I had never written with Josh until right when the band was kind of ending. And as it turned out, uh, probably five or six months after the band had ended, Josh needed a guitar player and called, you know, they called and said, you know, do you want to do this? And I had seen his guitar player who was a really, really amazing <laughs> talented guitar player which i'm i kind of do what i do um but josh and i had a conversation because we were writing a lot of songs and Mm -hmm. i was really happy with what we were doing and i did not want to jeopardize that by being a lousy guitar player for him Mm. Um, but he hired me and you know i was on the road with him for five years wow Uh, he had had some singles that did pretty well um in the country country world song called beer on the table uh way out here was another song that did pretty well for him so he had a good touring 
kind of thing going on, which was a lot of fun. It was, again, a lot of fun. And, and actually, while we were on the road is when we wrote Drowns of Whiskey. Uh, okay. So <laughs> that was the biggest benefit of being on the road, yeah. was being able to write <laughs> with Josh pretty regularly. Nice, nice. I'm joined today on the Now Hear This Entertainment guest line from Nashville by singer, songwriter, guitar player Jeff Middleton. He has a wide presence on social media. On the show page for this episode at nhte.net, I'm going to put a link to his music page on Facebook because there are links on it to also go to his Twitter and his Instagram. Plus, there is currently a link tree there from which you can also get to Jeff on YouTube and TikTok. He is also on Spotify, so do give him a follow on there. But support Jeff by purchasing downloads of his music from the likes of iTunes and other online digital music retailers. And keep up with him online so you can see where and when you can go see him perform live. We'll be talking more about that in the second half of the show. I've been mentioning this the last couple weeks, but have you checked it out yet? If you're a podcaster, a gamer, a musician, or heck, even an audio engineer, go to my show website, nhte.net, and in the right-hand column on desktop, or by scrolling way down on mobile, look for the block of social media icons and click or tap over to my YouTube channel, where you'll see an unboxing video that I made for the replacement ear pads sent to me by Deconi Audio. These folks have something I've been talking about on the podcast lately because I've just gotten so excited about it. In the video, you'll see me showing how the pleather was peeling off my headphones, yet instead of having to get new headphones, I was able to just replace the ear pads, and in the process, they also became so much more comfortable, which is huge for when you're in long gaming sessions or recording or editing sessions. Plus, I've been saying how I've even been wearing these now on airplanes to watch movies because they're comfortable and do such a great job of blocking out noise around me. Tap or click on the Deconi Audio logo on nhte.net to go see about replacement pads specific to the brand and model headphones you have, or just use the link that I have in the description of the unboxing video on YouTube. Jeff, you just made a reference to it, but my gosh, I can't have a guest on who is a writer on a song that had as much success as I said in the intro that Drowns the Whiskey did. You mentioned about Josh, but how did all that come together, meaning who are the other writers on it? How did you get the opportunity? And, and what do you remember about the actual songwriting session that resulted in that track? Not to mention, what do you remember about watching it go from there, unless you're going to tell me that initially it just sat and didn't go anywhere? I'm going to tell you that. Wow. Um, it's a, it's an interesting story. We wrote it in 2013. Wow. And it was Josh Thompson and Brandon Kinney and myself. And so okay. at the time... Uh, I was on the road with Josh, and he was in the middle of making a record for uh, his label. Mm -hmm. And so every weekend, you know, we would pretty much go out steady, you know, Wednesday through Sunday. And typically we were on a bus, so we were able to bring uh, writers with us. So every, you know, every weekend there would be typically a different writer or two who would travel with us for the weekend. Mm. And, you know, we would write songs. Um, sometimes, you know, right when you get on the bus in the middle of the night, sometimes you carve off time in between sound check and the show mm. to write. Um, sometimes it's in the back lounge of the bus. Sometimes it's in a hotel room. Wrote a lot of great songs during that period of time. Um, that one, Brandon had come out with us for a weekend. It might, I think it might've been only one show. Um, 
and the show was in Miami, Oklahoma. There's a casino there that we were on the way to play. And we wrote it the night that we left. And I don't remember all of the details because apropos to the song, we, we were drinking some whiskey perhaps <laughs> during the writing of it uh, and tired and in the middle of the night. But that the idea for that was actually uh, – there's some dispute amongst the three of us. I know that it was not mine, but there's always a friendly little, I don't know. And I, I think it was Brandon who walked on the bus with basically the first verse mm. and kind of the idea. And Josh and I looked at each other and we're like, Oh yeah, we're going to write that. Cause that's awesome. Mm. And, uh, so we wrote the song. I did a little junky work tape demo thing from mm-hmm. on the bus. It didn't get a lot of, you know, feedback from anybody uh but then i guess brandon was leaving a deal that that song was a part of and so was doing <laughs> what they call a cleanup session where they he'd go and demo maybe four or five more songs to see if they can get something uh and drowns of whiskey was on it and so this so the song basically sat around um for probably a year and a half to two years maybe Mm. and it was put on hold which uh for people who aren't familiar it's when an artist says they think they might want to cut it possibly maybe but don't play it for anybody else kind of thing um which is nice to have as a songwriter because it's at least better than a pass yeah which is a no we don't want it so it was on hold uh, and it was put on hold for an artist named tyler farr who at the time was being produced by Jason Aldean. Uh. So Jason was familiar with the song and it was put on hold for Tyler and it sat on hold for Tyler for a fairly long time. And I think it got to the point where, you know, as the, as the story was communicated to me that Jason basically said to Tyler, look, if you're not going to put this on your next record, then I'm going to cut it. Mm. And, so I think it didn't end up making Tyler's record and record and it was the best lost hold I've ever had in my life <laughs> because it went off hold with Tyler Farr and on hold for Jason Aldean mm. um, at the time. So and then it was not cut until 2017. So it, it was a long road for yeah. that song getting yeah. cut. Yeah. Having been written four years earlier. So cool. Yeah. So cool. Well, as much as any songwriter would love to have a song in their resume that was certified multi-platinum, you have been sure to not put all your eggs in one basket. You have experience in all aspects of the industry, and I'm sure you're going to tell us how well that has served you rather than only focusing on songwriting and not getting experience in other facets of the business. Well, there, you know, the band was actually the the piece of the music industry where I was able to use probably the most diverse of the skill set because I was already doing songwriting. Um, but the band allowed me to look at the industry from a number of different angles, one being a musician on the road. What's that like? You know, traveling with eight dudes in an RV. What is that like? Um you know, the the town-to-town sort of life that being on the road is. I also, in that particular phase of my life, was a uh, tour manager for a lot of time during that, which mm. means I got to 
you know, figure out how that works, settling with club owners, dealing with advancing shows and making sure that you can get where you want to get. And this is, this is prior to, uh, cell phones with ways and all that stuff on it. This was, let's print, let's print out some maps, uh, some map quest maps. (laughs) Um, so it was, it was something else. And, uh, so, so learning how all of that fit together, dealing with the booking agency to kind of manage the schedule and, and manage kind of the routing of where we're going. I got to see the inside of that kind of happening. Also incorporated a lot of management stuff once we were, you know, we were signed to the label. So we had to deal, I guess, first with the contract side of things, um, where my business background, I was able to to work with our lawyer and our business manager ah. here in town. And because we were actually one of the first two, I think they were being negotiated at the same time, ours and another artist, the first 360 deals that Warner Nashville had ever done. So, and they weren't common in the music industry at the time. Uh, you know, typical record deals will you know, back in that day would leave all other revenue streams except for the actual recordings to the artist. So merchandise and touring and all that stuff would be the artist. And then the record deal would cover basically the sales of albums and that sort of stuff. But since albums were starting to not be, you know, have mechanical royalties at the time, um, because of the Napster and digital and all that kind of stuff, Labels started to expand kind of the revenue sources that they were uh, going to take a piece of if you wanted a record deal. But nobody knew how they would work. Nobody knew kind of what that would look like. Mm. So we were basically able to structure our own deal and kind of say, this is, you know, this is what we want. And they were like, okay, well, that sounds all right. And so we did that. So I got to, you know, I got to see the legal process in there. You know, I'm not a lawyer, but play one on TV sometimes, <laughs> I guess. Um, and so that was a different way of, of kind of looking at the music industry yeah, uh, sure. as well. Sure. So the band was really where I got to, to see a lot of different places. And eventually after the Josh gig, I did end up actually working in business management office for a, a little while. Ah, okay. Well, speaking of keeping your hand in different areas of music, I mentioned in the intro that you do perform regularly at the Bluebird Cafe and the Listening Room in Nashville. I've never really asked this before of a guest who performs at one or both of those places, but talk, Jeff, about the mix of tourists and locals there before, in the case of the latter, there's the chance it might be someone influential in the music industry, and in the case of the former, you've got the opportunity to get some new followers. That's a great question because I've found at both places the mix is pretty much the same, um, which is you're probably going to have 60 to 80 percent of new people or tourists or people who've never been to the venue before. Um, So it is a great opportunity to sort of introduce your music to people. And the the trick is, you know, the funny part is with all the technology and all of the stuff we still have, the issue is really still converting people who hear your music into people who follow you yeah. on social media. You know, we used to do 
email lists and hope to God that people would walk out and write their email lists. And there's nothing greater than trying to interpret a half intoxicated (laughs) email address on a piece of paper. Uh, But you can, you know, if you can convert them at the show, you know, to follow you on Twitter or Instagram or anywhere, um, that is a great opportunity to do that. And they're great places to play. They're a lot of fun and songwriter oriented, which is what I love. And is it a case of if I'm pleasing them, then the folks that are here that are in the music industry will like what I'm doing? Or is it, no, I'm separately mindful of that that part of the audience? That's usually a different kind of mindset. I'm, I think the longer I've been doing this, and this is probably great. Uh, I wish someone had told me when I was younger, just play the show, do the show. Don't worry about who's there from the industry. Because at some point, you're going to have to do your show the way you want to do it anyway. So you might as well start. And if Mm. they like you, they like you. If they don't, then so be it. You still did the show that you got. And if you made fans, you know, and I think back when I started, though, the difference was you you did need sort of the industry to get you in front of fans. These days, it is a little bit more where you can say, okay, well, you don't like me, but I can communicate directly with my fans, which I think is – hugely important for artists. Mm -hmm. Well, I want the audience to understand that Jeff does perform outside of Nashville. In fact, as much as I said that next week I will be at the Pensacola Beach Songwriters Festival, Jeff, you were mentioning you were just in Maryland at the Annapolis Songwriters Festival, plus you also played down at the southernmost tip of Florida earlier this year at the Key West Songwriters Festival, which we both know take on a very different vibe, meaning songwriters festivals. Yes. I, and that's the thing, you know, I actually, um, you'll probably run into a bunch of buddies of mine next weekend. Um, so, so I'm a little jealous, but, uh, that's definitely something that I love. They, the songwriter, um, the songwriter festival is usually going to be smaller, more intimate kind of venues. Um, the key West one is just a beach party, um, spread out throughout you know, that part of the world, which, which is just a fun place to be. Uh, the Annapolis one, this is, was the first year they've done it. Um, and it's run by the Rams head and BMI. They all work on the key West one and they did this one in Annapolis and it was fantastic. You know, the venues were great. The, you know, it's great to run around with, you know, run around town and, and see your friends and hang out with people from Nashville. Uh, I joked that the the flight up was like a like a class trip because you know I think the the Southwest flight was probably about sixty percent Nashville songwriters, um, which I think people were like, why are there so many guitars? <laughs> so, but it's fun, and I do love playing the songwriter festival. Um, I'm in the process of trying to book a bunch more of those things now, so I can get out there and meet those people that like kind of what we do yeah nice nice well be gentle with me on this one am i correct that you're in a band that has 77 members or am i misunderstanding something here what is chaos no (laughs) so chaos is exactly what it sounds like um so i'm not sure how familiar you are with web3 and nfts and that kind of world but the high level uh for your listeners who maybe aren't is uh Basically, there's a movement in the world towards using uh, blockchain 
which is crypt, which is basically cryptocurrency as a foundation for ownership of assets. And the application in the music industry is if you can put your songs or your albums or your artwork on the blockchain, you can verify ownership. The easiest example I can think of is uh, if, for instance, this existed back when Taylor Swift was not an artist that anybody knew of or maybe very few people had heard of, and she put her work tape for Tim McGraw, her first single, out as an NFT – Someone might buy it for 50 bucks, but now it is worth who knows how much because she's now Taylor Swift. So the appreciation of assets, all that to set up that I've been kind of dabbling in that world, um, looking for ways to monetize my own assets, which are copyrights. You know what I write. I want that to generate money somehow. So I dove into that space and chaos is a project that's been run by an organization called Song Camp. And it's a project to try to kind of see how you might use this new technology in our industry. And so there were 77 members and the members were all over the world and involved some tech people like programmers and developers. It involved 45 actual musicians and then it involved some business brains who could kind of help us with marketing and all that kind of stuff and then some visual artists and so the idea being that we would create songs so i i was a part of three songs um of which there are 45 songs and then there's artwork that is attached with each song that basically gets generated when somebody purchases the pack as it's called and it's like a old pokemon card pack where you buy a pack and you get four songs and four pieces of art so it's not a band in the traditional sense of a band that goes and tours it's a band of people from all over genres all over styles Hmm. all over skill sets trying to create something new and figure out how this technology might work and we did a pretty it's a pretty cool project um but I'm thinking that you're going to tell me that someone can't just go on Spotify and look up chaos. There's got to be somewhere different that they would go to look for this. Yes. Yes, there is a website and I cannot for the life of me remember the last. Um, I don't it's not chaos.com. It might be chaos.ie. Anyway, if you were to look up chaos NFTs, it would bring you there is a website where you can listen to the music and you don't have to buy an NFT you know, or get into that whole world if you don't uh, want to. Okay. So you can listen to the music and you can see some of the artwork on the main website for the band. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Wow. Wow. Well, we're going to close today with another one of Jeff's original songs. This is the one that he just released last month called It's All the Same. Jeff, before I let you go and I play that track, share with the audience all about this song, if you would, please. Of course. So this song is a bit of a unicorn because... I actually wrote it all by myself Mm. and I know I I was stunned too. (laughs) Um, I wrote it myself and I did the, you know, production and all the instruments. I did it kind of all myself in the old Bruce Springsteen tunnel love format where I just hold up in, in my little room. Um, And it's about kind of going back to that hometown and being reminded of all the things um, and, you know, the love that was associated with that particular hometown where, you you know, I've been away from 
my hometown for 30 years. Um, but you do go back and you do feel certain things and you remember certain things that maybe you have forgotten or put away. Um, but there's just something about how the heart can get back there pretty quickly. Okay, but take so. us through the decision that you write the song by yourself and then you say, you know what, I'm just going to put this out as me. I'm not going to try to shop this to anybody. I, you know, I've gotten to the point where it kind of is in line what we were talking about with NFTs. Like, it's an independent world these days, and I've never really pursued uh, as a solo singer-songwriter being able to build an audience on my own and do all that sort of stuff. So uh, it's just my first kind of step in that direction to go just be me out on the, on the wild frontier that is the internet. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. Well, Jeff, congratulations on the new song nonetheless. And thank you so much. It was great having you on the show. I appreciate you making time to be on now here, this entertainment. Bruce, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, yeah, you bet, you bet. And with that, I will wrap up another new episode of Now Hear This Entertainment. My sincere thanks to singer, songwriter, guitar player Jeff Middleton. Do engage with him on social media. As I mentioned earlier, I'm going to put a link on the show page for this episode at nhte.net to Jeff's music page on Facebook. Of course, you should like that page, but then also look there for links to his Twitter and Instagram accounts. I have liked and followed him on all three of those, and I know he would appreciate you doing the same. In addition, on that Facebook page, there is currently a link tree that you can use to get to his YouTube channel and his TikTok as well. For that matter, tell Jeff you heard him and his music and now hear this entertainment. Find Jeff on Spotify, too, and follow him on there, but support him by purchasing downloads of his music. You're about to hear his brand-new single from iTunes and online digital music retailers and... Follow him on social media to see where and when you can go see him perform live. When I was talking about the Focusrite Vocaster, I mentioned that this episode is being released on September 28th, my birthday. If you were subscribed to my weekly e-newsletter, you would have not only gotten information this morning about this newest episode, but since I like to offer exclusives from time to time to people who are on that list, I included something in there this morning as a way of me giving gifts in light of today being my birthday. Punch up my show website, nhte.net, and you will see a box to put your email address in to get that weekly e-newsletter that I send each Wednesday. Trust me when I say that I will only send to you once a week. That's going to do it for episode 450. Thanks ever so much for listening. I'll send you out today with another song from Jeff Middleton. This is the one he just talked about. It's called It's All the Same. Remember that dive bar, never bother checking IDs. Yeah, we were so cool on those bar stools, barely 18. Yeah, we'd made it first taste of that cold draft beer. Damn, I ain't been in here in years. It's all the same. Remember that boat dock by that bait shop that your daddy owned? That last summer, we just hang there till the sun was gone. Holding you in my arms Underneath the stars I close my eyes And nothing's changed I can see you riding In my front seat I can see forever In front of me And though it's been a long time I still feel your goodbye The way it comes back When I come back this way It's all the same
It's all the same. Remember you told me you were sorry under this cottonwood. I had to fly out of this small town fast as I could. When I ain't here, I'm fine. You hardly cross my mind. But on this side of the county line, I could see you riding in my front seat. I can see forever in front of me. You know it's been a long time. I still feel your goodbye. The way it comes back when I come back this way, it's all the same. It's all the same. I can see forever in front of me. No, it's been a long time. I still feel your goodbye. The way it comes back when I come back this way. It's still here. It still hurts like it happened today. It's all the same. It's all the same. It's all the same. It's all the same. It's all the same.